Hi there. A quick note before you start listening to this episode. As the podcast has evolved, we've come to focus more directly on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizational life. The episode you're currently listening to focuses more broadly on the topic of creating purposeful organizations. So if that's what you're after, then listen on. But if you're looking for more DEI-focused content, we suggest skipping forward a few episodes and looking for the ones titled Inclusion at Work. Happy listening. But at the time, we could see that there's a huge amount of people who say they would make investment decisions based around ethics. So there was a stat from the Australian Institute at the time that said that 25% of people would switch their superannuation if they found out it was invested in coal or coal seam gas. 25% of people, and yet 1% of people were doing it at the time. So there's this really big um, action gap. Welcome to the Leaders for Good podcast. How do you drive systems change? Well, in this episode, we were lucky enough to sit down with Adam Verwey, who is the co-founder of Future Super. Future Super is one of Australia's fastest growing super funds, manages over a billion in assets for over 40,000 Australians, and was Australia's first 100% fossil fuel-free ethical superannuation fund. In this episode, we dive into how Adam thinks about taking action that creates real momentum and drives positive systems change. We look at how Future Super thinks about maintaining and evolving its diverse and positive culture. And we dive into some of the stories and the fantastic initiatives that have been championed by Adam and Future Super over the years. This was a great conversation and we hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed having it. So... Without further ado, we bring you Adam Verwey. So welcome to the Leaders for Good podcast. We are lucky enough to be joined today by Adam, who is the co-founder of Future Super. He is also one of the most inspirational men I've met, and I'm very lucky to be able to call him one of my friends. That's a great intro, isn't it? <laughs> it's probably you. the strongest endorsement we've given any guest. It's a strong endorsement it's to be a friend now. of mine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so where we'd love to start is your story of Broken Hill and where you grew up and how that's influenced who you are today. Sure. Um, so uh, me and my family ended up in Broken Hill when I was uh, a teenager. Uh, and the way we ended up there was that um, uh, my dad, I don't know, maybe a little midlife crisis, whatever it is, um, uh, decided that uh, my family uh, were going to start living all through Outback Australia, really going to towns and cities where the main industry had left. Uh, and he went in and was uh, trying to find new ways to bring new employment and different things into those towns. So I spent um, quite a bit of um, my childhood going around to towns where, like, you know, the railways had left, uh, where the power stations had left. And um, what they left behind was just a community of people who were, you know, searching around for something to, to help them, to, to, to an identity, things like that. Uh, and then we ended up in Broken Hill as part of that. Um, and Broken Hill is um, sort of an interesting place to live, um, particularly, you know, you're more aware of it after you move away. <laughs> yep. um, but it's a, a town, a mining town, where the mine is literally on the main street. It's in the middle of town. So you have uh, sort of about 15,000 people who are all living in a big circle around uh, a mine. And that mine is a, it looks like a big hill. So it's a, it's a big hill with all these tailings that have been brought out from underground, uh, formed a big hill. Uh, and uh, that big hill is full of lead. 
um, because that's what they mine in Broken Hill. So it's all full of lead tailings, and lead is um, very poisonous. Um, so you have this big <laughs> poisonous hill right in the middle of town, uh, and that has an awful impact on the lives of people, particularly people who are born in Broken Hill. So if you're born in Broken Hill, there's a chance that you have elevated uh, levels of lead in your blood, which can cause you all sorts of problems as you um, grow up uh, and really cause you difficulties later in life. Um, so in that case, like, it's quite an interesting place to live. It's also a place where those mines uh, have been around for a long time. Lots of people have died in those mines as well. There's a miners' memorial and uh, over 100 people have died in those mines as well. Um, so, uh, so Broken Hill's kind of paid quite a big price in order to play a role in what you think is creating a lot of wealth for uh, the Commonwealth, right? Uh, Broken Hill has this mythology, same as uh, other big mining towns, is really like uh, being important for all of Australia's economy, all of us. Um, but then I had a, um, a moment when actually playing an investment game in high school. You know how you sometimes get given an investment game where you get given like a fake amount of money, but you've got to invest in the stock market. And so we we're playing this game and everyone's investing in BHP because it's the biggest company in Australia at the time. And our teacher tells us the BH stands for Broken Hill, um, which feels like something at the time I should have known, <laughs> but I didn't. Uh, and then you realise, oh, hang on, like everything um, that I've seen in Broken Hill, everything that I think feels unfair, um, like kids being very sick, about deaths in the mines, all these things, they haven't been for the Commonwealth. They've helped create the biggest company in the world and they've made a few people very, very rich. And it's at the expense of uh, the people around me. Mm. And there's, uh, I know it was quite a shocking thing to like realise. And uh, when you're a teenager, there's not a lot of ways you know how to like channel how you feel about something like that. Um, and so it just kind of like sat with me as this kind of like real unfairness that kids in my town could grow up very sick with very limited opportunities as a result of a company that helped make some people exceptionally rich. Um, and I should also say that this isn't just like what BHP has done in Broken Hill. Like BHP has caused huge problems all around the world. Uh, you know, there was a, uh, some significant damage they caused to uh, a river in South America a few years ago where it wiped out an entire town. Um, so it's not like, you know, this, is <laughs> this isn't unique to Broken Hill, but BHP has caused this destruction for, for you know, Yep. Uh, all over the place. Um, so where I took that anger is I um, ended up leaving, going to uni in Canberra, and I joined the student unions, which, if you've got a little bit of anger in you, is a really great, <laughs> really great <laughs> avenue to get it out. Um, and um, and I realised I'm just going straight ahead into sort of my story of <laughs> how yeah, I got yeah, into ethical investment as well. This is great, yeah. um, and when I was in the student unions, um, a few students uh, started asking us questions about where uh, our student union money was invested. Um, and so we looked at where it was invested. It was just in like some normal, regular investments. Uh, and we switched it into ethical investments instead. Uh, and it prompted me to look at um, what, is, what is my money doing? So I'm a university student, very little money. Um, and I looked at my superannuation fund, which was with REST at the time. And the largest holding of my superannuation fund was BHP. Mm. So uh, thankfully, I just found out about ethical investment because of what I'd had to do in the student unions. I looked at who I could switch my superannuation to, which I switched it to a group called Australian Ethical Super. Uh, and it meant that whatever share I held in BHP was now gone. Uh, and that made me feel just great. Like, it made me feel like actually for the first time, I had a power to do something against yep. something as big as BHP. Uh, and um, actually felt so good about that experience that when I graduated from university, I applied for a job at that ethical investment company 
uh, and that's just what I um, that's just what I wanted to <laughs> wanted to do. Um, yeah, so that's yeah, that's how I got into got into my industry in the in the first place. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. That's a that's a great. So I'm I'm curious. Did you have a sense at the time as a as a as a kid growing up in Broken Hill of the the, the kind of the level of value extraction or the level of inequity that was that was kind of at play or was you know when you're in the when you're in the environment and you don't necessarily have anything like a lot of reference points it, it might be hard I'm just yeah I'm curious um I think not easily I, th I think there's something that you can see from like because you, you know what's around you and so like in Broken Hill you don't look around and see well there's the really <laughs> wealthy part of town and there's a not wealthy part of town it, it all feels fairly even mm. I should say um but you definitely see an inequality when you can see a company is one of the largest companies on in the world, and you think, well, how does that how does that relate to where I live? My, mm. This just doesn't look like the town that created the largest company in the world. But I guess you also see it in other ways, right? Like uh, I remember going on a school camp <laughs> in Year Twelve to Sydney uh, in order to do some learning for the HSC, mm. and then going into classrooms and seeing like. Um, you know, kids at other schools had laptops and computers, which for like 1999, 2000 seemed like the extreme <laughs> side of wealth to me. And, you know, I think it's things like that as well that highlight like, ah, oh, oh no, like this is, um, we're not all on an even playing field. I, mm. I clearly don't have the same educational opportunities in Outback New South Wales as uh, kids do in uh, wealthy parts of Sydney. Mm. Yeah. We've spoken quite a bit off mic about change and the theory of change. And I, I thought that might be a nice way to underpin the, the rest of the conversation. So I was just wondering if you could unpack what the theory of change is and how it's shaped and influenced your thinking and, and, and how that plays a role in Future Super. Yeah. So maybe I'll go back to... Um the point at which I switched my own superannuation, which was mm. as a um, sort of 19, 20-year-old at university, which is I did it on my own in my dorm room. So I did something that um, made me feel really good, obviously made me feel so good that I made other life decisions off the back of it as mm. well. Um, but I didn't talk to anybody about it. Uh, I wasn't part of a movement. I just took an individual action in isolation and all that really happened was probably about $3 worth of BHP shares uh, got sold. Um, so um, I did an action which made me feel great, but actually didn't contribute to any further change, mm. um, which is actually what the ethical investment industry was really like, not just at that time, for, but for a number of years afterwards. Mm. It was an action that helped people feel good about their own personal impacts, but it wasn't um, some collective thing that people did. Um, but then uh, across, uh, so I worked at that company for almost 10 years. And over 10 years, you do see the power that your money can have uh, in having an influence. And at the same time, you can get really frustrated to see how it's not being used. Um, mm. Well, not being used by that group of people. Clearly, there's very wealthy people who use the influence of money all the time. Uh, but for the rest of us, we just weren't, um, we, we just weren't using it. And at the same time, like superannuation is the... Uh, in Australia is the fourth biggest pool of money in the world. Uh, so at the moment, it's about $3 trillion. You know, um, it's projected to get up to $6 trillion by the year 2035. Huge pool of money. And that's all of our money. So that's all uh, stuff that we have the power to change. But back in um, 2014, when we set up Future Super, only 1% of superannuation money was invested in a fund that had an ethical investment strategy. But at the time, we could see that there's a huge amount of people who say they would make investment decisions 
based around ethics. So there was uh, a stat from the Australian Institute at the time that said that 25% of people would switch their superannuation if they found out it was invested in coal or coal seam gas. 25% of people, and yet 1% of people were doing it at the time. Mm. So there's this really big um, action gap uh, on there. So I think what uh, we wanted to do when we were starting Future Super was try and create a fund that was part of a movement that could help bridge that gap. Um, and one of the things that gave me confidence that we could create a movement was um, sort of one of the things I signed up to do in 2013, which was I put my hand up to be a, a Greens candidate at the 2013 election. So like many people at the time was concerned about what um, a Tony Abbott government could mean for action on climate change, particularly because a lot of action had been taken by the previous government in terms of putting in a price on carbon, things like that. So I just thought I should just want to do whatever I can. And what I can do is I can put my hand up and, and, and spend a year knocking on doors and doing those different sorts of things. Uh, and I was lucky enough that um, one of the people I got to run in the election with uh, was my co-founder, Simon Shake, who had uh, just finished up as national director at GetUp. So uh, for people who don't know, like GetUp is the largest uh, online political organisation in Australia, like really great at doing community building, community organising things. So what I got to see was Simon come <laughs> into the ACT where we were running and take the Greens, which had like a small group of regular volunteers and created into a group where a thousand people volunteered on that election campaign. Just this huge, it was like, it was amazing to see community organising in that way. And just watching it, just thinking, man, I would love to apply this <laughs> to what I'm doing in uh, ethical investment and ethical superannuation. And, and just yeah. on that, what was the what was the lever that was pulled to to go from a handful of people to a thousand volunteers? That's that's huge. Yeah, well, it's probably because um, I felt like a bit of a passenger on that, to be honest. So it's probably a better question for Simon. But what I could <laughs> see was like one of the key things was he asked people to, <laughs> to help him. Um, one of the biggest learnings I got from that period was just like like the value of just asking people. People actually like usually do want to mm. help um, and sometimes they don't know how and just ask them to help you and, and they do. Uh, in that case, ask for help, door knocking, ask for money to help fund things like that. Yeah, he was, um, he's very great at asking for help. And so that's one of the things I learned um, through that. Um, yeah, and then obviously- it's The simplest thing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and obviously I was very lucky, but he ended up losing by only a couple of hundred votes in the end, which meant uh, he was available to, <laughs> to um, jump in and, um, and work on this with me. And because we spent a whole year spending time together doing this, um, we also just got to talk about my work quite a bit. I sort of said what was going on. And one of the things I said I could see was there's this huge movement of people who now understand about the power of money and how they can use it um, to influence climate change. So there's this fossil fuel divestment movement. And in Australia, there was, you know, 10,000, 20,000 people in Australia who were switching their banking to fossil free banking. They were switching their energy to renewable energy providers, but they had no one they could go to in the superannuation space. And then what we also knew was the superannuation providers were not motivated to change the way they were working because what, there was no fund for people to, to move to. Um, so we thought, well, um, there's this collective of people anyway who are wanting to switch. And actually what we could be is the superannuation fund that could come in and allow that to happen. Mm. Um, so when we originally got set up, our place in the movement was a sort of a place for the movement to put its money to then help them influence super funds to change the way they invest. Mm. Um, and we've sort of, as we've gotten bigger, we've been able to think about different ways we can be more active 
Um, but at the first, it was like, let's, our fear of change was, let's just be the first domino. Let's mm. just be the first domino that makes everybody else end up investing exactly like us, which is almost, it was also not a business plan that most funds have. Like usually you want to have differentiation over time. It was actually, mm. we make our impact when everybody invests like us and the points of difference <laughs> disappear. Yeah. So you mentioned 1% of people were originally investing in for good. Was that the right stuff? Uh, in an ethical investment in an strategy. Ethical investment yeah. strategy. What does that look like now? Uh, it looks a lot bigger now, um, but it's also hard to get stats because there's been such a rush yep. into the space. Um, and in particular in the last two or three years to the point where now the industry is looking at things like terminology and greenwashing and things mm. like that. Uh, but the Responsible Investment Association says now that about half of money uh, in professionally managed funds is labelled as responsible or ethical. Yep. But then they say, well, actually... It's more like a, a quarter to a third of money is mm. invested in something that's labelled that way, but actually it passes the minimum you would expect yep. um, as, a, as a consumer of what could be labelled ethical and responsible. Yep. So it's obviously, it's not like 25% is invested like Future Super. Yep. It's 25% is invested with some ethical overlay. Sure. And, and what are, the, what are the, 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 the tick boxes that make it ethical if, you, if, you're, looking at, if you're looking at a fund, if you're looking at the, 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 you know, the, the, the organisations which make up the fund? What are you, what are you thinking about? Because it's, it's quite a broad term and I think people probably have an, you know, an idea in their head. You know, it's mining, it's fossil fuels, but how does it go beyond that? Yeah, I think one thing to remember, because I think often we think everyone's ethics are different. Sure. Um, but, like, I don't really agree Agree with that. I think if you're looking, uh, if you're interested in ethical investment, um, I think there's a lot of overlap in what people think constitutes ethical. I think mm. people think that's something that contributes to um, a better planet, a better society, um, safer communities, you know, uh, care for, for um, animals. Like, I think those things are just mm. collective things. And the research shows again and again that there's, uh, that's what everybody agrees on. And then there's a little bit of grey area around how you might interpret that and, and, and how far you might go. Mm. Um, but I think if you were looking to see whether an ethical fund actually matched your ethics, the first place would be to look at how transparent they mm. are, which is do they actually disclose um, what they screen in and out in a really clear way? Mm. And then do they disclose uh, their investment holdings? Uh, you know, so you can see you know, their names on that list that may or may not match your expectations. And then I think increasingly you also want to see evidence that they kind of walk the talk outside of the way they invest their money. Mm. So when you're managing trillions of dollars, as the superannuation industry does, um, well, you're owners of trillions of dollars worth of companies. And so when you're investing in those companies, how are you acting? So I think you want to see some transparency and disclosure around the sorts of conversations they're having with companies uh, and what change they're trying to make while they're a shareholder. Because it's not just about divesting and negative screening. You might do that for an industry that you know has... Um, no place in a, <laughs> you know, in a safe planet. But there are other companies who are very neutral who still uh, can play, you know, a better role in terms of um, their ethical performance. And you talked about being this domino effect, so I love that. And there's obviously been a huge amount of change in the sector. How do you feel about how far that's gone? Do you feel proud? Do you feel like you've made a real change? Or do you still feel like there's lots of work to do? Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll answer that with two yeah. examples because um, I will also say that like the, the early days of Future Super were also just like the most fun wild ride because um, I'd never started a new business or company before. And one mm. of my 
favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite things from sort of, it must have been in our first year, um, was uh, a time when we realized our fear of change was, was kind of playing out. It was for like the first time we got real validation on it, which was when, um, and we only had maybe half a dozen staff at the time. So I'm, where I'm sitting is also like next to the desk where the person who's answering our member phone calls mm. is coming from. Um, and we got a phone call where somebody said, oh, just letting you know that um, my old super fund phoned me and not just anybody, like the CEO of my old super fund phoned me, super critical of future super. These are the things the person said. And then about 10 minutes later, we get another phone call. Another member rings us up and says, uh, this might sound a bit weird, but the CEO of my old super fund um, rang me up and said X, Y, Z, like all the, all the things. Uh, and so... Now we're thinking, oh, this feels like a bit of a pattern. <laughs> mm. But also, like, it is weird that a CEO of uh, a fund that has billions of dollars is rigging people who are joining a fund where probably only had $50 million in it at the time. Mm. Uh, and I won't name which the fund is because um, I won't... We um, actually ended up doing something quite good. Um, but so what we thought is, okay, this is interesting. We're hearing this coming out. Uh, so then we, we looked at the list of other people who'd switched to this super fund and we rang one up and said, out of interest, have you have received a phone call from your old super fund? Yep. Um, we have, this is what they said. And so we looked at the other people who'd switched. Not many, like we're talking about two dozen people and we decided we're going to quickly send out an email saying you're about to receive a phone call from the CEO <laughs> of your old super fund. Uh, and I think these are, the, these are how you could have a really co good conversation with him about um, why they shouldn't be investing in fossil fuels, how this was the reason for you to leave, blah, blah, blah. So we quickly sent that out. Um, and so we then started getting feedback from members saying, yeah, he called me and I had this great conversation. I used all your talking points. This was really, really great. Um, and um, so that was that was just super fun. Like that was a fun moment. And that's the startup world at its best. It is a startup world, but also like amazing from our members. Like I think that's one of the things I was really yeah. like, our members who joined were just like so into doing this. And then in the end, um, our members were saying, the CEO was so infuriated at the end of these phone calls, so infuriated. And the way <laughs> um, that Superfund ended up channeling that infuriation was they then um, took their sustainable option, which was a bit rubbish at the time. They then made it um, really heavy on their fossil fuel screening. So they actually introduced new screens that looked a lot like what Future Super would do. Mm. And they made it their cheapest option. Amazing. So suddenly this super fund now had one of the most ethical and cheapest superannuation options available. And it's like, well, this is great. All it took was about two dozen members switching from that fund to, to make that impact. Mm. So that was the first time where we thought, actually, like this is, um, this is our fear of change working out. And we played the right role in it. Like... Our members actually were the ones who made the change, but they needed a super fund like us to exist to help that um, help that happen. Um, so I guess that was one of the early ones that felt really good. And that also yeah. really channels the community organising that you mm. talked about earlier, giving yeah. people the tools to make change. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was it was so great. Yeah, it was really great. And it was also we had the right staff as well who understood community organising and things like that. It's a very different staff to what. Mm. Um, a traditional super fund um, might have in terms of their backgrounds and their motivations for, for working in the industry. But in terms of more recent changes, there's been a lot of super funds in the last few months of last year who've made commitments to be uh, net zero carbon uh, by 2050. And there's also a super fund that came out in the last few weeks who said they were aiming to be a lot more ambitious and be net uh, carbon zero by 2030, which is actually the right uh, thing to aim for. If you're, if you're aiming for zero carbon by 2050, 
um, you're essentially signing us up uh, still to the worst uh, impacts of climate change and 2030 mm. gives us mm. a chance to, you know, do things like try and save what's left of the Great Barrier Reef, mm. um, things like that. Um, but I think obviously uh, Future Super can't take credit for all of these commitments coming in. We just played a role in it. Uh, but you can see how um, you needed a fund like ours to begin with to start that train moving. Uh, and you can see that um, the pressure we're able to apply uh, along with other deeper green ethical fund managers and along with the, the other action that's taken as well. So I think people are also using legal avenues nowadays to push their super funds to take climate seriously. Mm. There was a, a person called Mark McVeigh who took rest superannuation to court uh, in the last year about, you know, how seriously they were taking climate change in the way they invest money, which then had repercussions through the industry. So while, like, obviously we can't take credit for where everything is going, I feel quite proud of the small part that we played as a super mm. fund uh, to exist in the first place to help get some of that ball rolling, yeah. Just circling back around to the to the theory of change, you've unpacked some really, um, some really great stories of kind of how it's come to life. Um, I'm potentially just scratching my own itch, itch here because I'm a lover of models and frameworks and packaging in kind of like neat little neat little kind of uh, frameworks but you know could you could you describe the theory of changes are there several components to it is it a what, what does it what does it look like if you had to put it in a, a couple of sentences so I'm actually not very good at all the frameworks and different things like that and I thankfully have an impact team <laughs> who's really good at those things uh, so I'm not um um yeah, so I'm not good at um, expressing it really well, but I think our theory of change is around, one, we, we, needed, um, we needed to be the first domino that mm -hmm. knocks over the rest of the domino. And also I think what we do is we prove the case for fossil fuel-free ethical investment mm. um, by being a great fund for our members, by attracting members and stealing members from other super funds and applying that pressure on them through members walking out mm. um, for them to then change the way they invest their money. Part of that also requires members to leave them, uh, their old fund, in a way that makes that real. So people move super funds all the time for like boring reasons, like they change their job or something like that. Like that's actually most of the movement within super funds. Um, so movements that happen outside of that, you really need your members to be telling their fund that they are shifting and that they're shifting because um, mm. of their exposure to fossil fuels or because they're not taking climate change seriously or other ethical reasons. Mm. And I think a lot of our members understand that as well. I think they're, they're very good at uh, highlighting to their super funds when they're leaving. I think they've also done a good enough job that now when um, super funds see that people have moved to us, they know the reason. Like the reason sure. people yeah. join Future Super is because of action on climate and, and, and mm. things, things like that. But I think the other part of our theory of change that we've introduced is I think we want to show and demonstrate what best practice looks like to make it easier for mm. others. So we, we take other funds members um, in order to put the pressure on and then we try and make it easier for them to invest like us as mm. well. Uh, and we can do that in a few ways. One, we could show a pathway to getting to net zero carbon by 2030 in their portfolios. Another way is that we can um, seed new investment products that Future Super can invest in but others can invest in as well. So use our capital in a way that unlocks uh, opportunities for other investors as well. So we've seen that um, we've, we've um, sort of partnered with other um, providers of investment products like that before, which has helped unlock a few more billion dollars um, of divested and, and truly ethical money, which has been really great. Not all of other super funds have invested, followed us in those products yet, mm. uh, but lots of other investors have. 
Uh, but usually super funds are so big that they don't need any help mm-hmm. <laughs> creating mm-hmm. their own invested portfolios and investment strategies. They don't, you know, they don't really need Future Super to help sure. them um, <laughs> do that. And I think just for any listeners that might not know, Theory of Change is a framework that's used in the not-for-profit and social impact sector. Mm. So it's about looking at the specific actions that you're taking as an organisation and mapping the flow through of those all the way through to the outcomes and the impact that they actually make. So if you're interested in that, give Theory of Change a Google and there's some really interesting ways to think about how you how you make an impact. And, and some of the things you unpacked there I thought were really, really interesting around... Um, remo- providing a compelling reason, removing friction for people, um, leveraging scale and momentum. So you, you're seeing movement towards something, making that movement visible um, to you know to the market, and then providing a blueprint for others to to follow as well. Because as you said, you know it's not just it's not just Future Super who we want to be. Um, funneling money into into the directions it is it's 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 every super fund um ideally um so yeah i love that thank you that was great (laughs) yeah i think um one of the other really good things our team has done is to help find a way to show the power of uh, the power of money Mm. that people have Mm. in their super in their banking and all different other areas because money is a little bit taboo Mm -hmm. to talk Mm. about and also money can be really boring to talk about as well so trying to find uh what are the best ways that we can show the power that people have in a way that they would want to talk to their friends, their family, their co-workers about it, which then contributes to the movement. Uh, we're giving people tools to talk about it. And there's been uh, two things in particular that we found have been really motivating for our members to see their collective impact. Mm. Um, so um, one is uh, we showed how uh, people's carbon impacts through their, the way their money is invested far outweighs any other personal actions mm. um, they can take. So. Uh, and also it's very easy. It's very easy to switch a super fund. That can take you a few minutes and it's online and it's, it's really easy to do. But, you know, being a vegetarian, um, doing your recycling every week, riding your bike to work, those are actually hard things that yep. make small impacts. Yep. But, like, all those things are worth doing. But in terms of scale of impact, nothing matches um, your, your impacts you have through your money. Um, and so we have a chart that shows how, from a car financed emission or from, from an emissions perspective, how... Uh, how your super and switching your super compares to other actions. Uh, and that's been a really, like our members love sharing that. Um, the other one was um, from a piece of work we did with um, UTS and their Sustainable uh, Futures Institute, which showed that um, if we only use the money in our superannuation funds, 7.7% of that money in our superannuation funds could on its own entirely power a clean energy grid in Australia by the year 2035. Wow. Um, and I think when people hear that, they think only 7.7% of superannuation could entirely fund this clean energy transition. Um, like it's, it's, a, it's an extremely powerful thing yeah. to think. Um, so both those two things we found are things that um, our members find really easy to share in order to show um, the power of, of this action. How do you? Uh, I, was, I was. What you're describing sounds a lot like some of the logic behind the effective altruism movement, which we really like. So it's it, that looks at the the most effective charities in the world and the most effective ways to give. And the most effective charities aren't just a little bit more effective than than other charities. They are orders of magnitude more effective in terms of saving lives and having positive impact. Um, and it sounds like there's a you know a, a similar game going on here. It's you know what you do with your money is far more important than potentially the, the, the act of riding, riding the bike to work. But there's an emotional connection there sometimes between some of those, those smaller actions, between the recycling, the, the riding the bike. It's the small stuff that you can feel a tangible impact on and have an emotional connection to. I'm, I'm wondering if that plays into your thinking with how you communicate to members and customers 
Yeah. Um, it, it's hard because, like, when people take those actions as individuals, you don't want to discourage people doing them mm. uh, because every little thing helps. Every little thing helps. But clearly there are some things that help far more than others, and those are the things we should prioritise. Mm. So while the little things we do can help, if we want to make the systems change that's required, we've got to do the big things. Mm. Um, and that does mean doing things like changing your energy, changing your super, thinking about who you vote for, um, that, sort of, <laughs> that sure. sort of thing. And whether you use your keep cup or not isn't making systems change, it's just helping you reduce the amount of coffee cups um, mm. you're um, producing. Um, so you don't want to discourage those things. But equally, I, I always worry when um, the responsibility for things shifts from where it should be. So mm. the idea of even personal carbon footprints came out of the fossil fuel industry. Mm. It's right. So they're right. responsible. <laughs> they're resp like fossil fuel companies are responsible um, sure. for uh, the climate crisis for the most part. But by creating this idea around personal carbon footprints, they've transferred responsibility to it to individuals who, who weren't the contributors to so, it. So don't pay attention to what we're doing. Make sure you're <laughs> turning your lights off when you go to bed um, kind of thing. Yeah. So like, so obviously people should try and reduce their personal carbon footprints because it's a good thing. But sure. we shouldn't allow the responsibility to be shifted. We should like be clear about who's responsible for it. It's fossil fuel companies. And if we want... Uh, to create the systems change, then we need to end fossil fuel companies. Like, that is the only way. They're incompatible with a safe world. Mm. Um, so the change uh, we're trying to make, that you can make through money, but you can't make through things like keep cups or recycling, is ending fossil fuel companies. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. And how's your thinking evolved over time? And, and uh, your, your thinking personally and, and potentially future super, whichever's, whichever's kind of easiest to answer or, or kind of you, you can unpack some examples of. But yeah, what was, what was sort of day or, or year one of future super looking like in terms of how you thought about making impact versus, versus now? Uh, yeah, I think there's a... Um, so when, when we started future super, like I probably wasn't somebody who as much about um, impact and things as I do now. I think I was somebody who already worked in an industry that was good, um, uh, was quite happy just doing that good work, um, but hadn't stretched my mind to, or challenged myself to think about how I actually contribute to bigger change. Mm. Uh, and through Future Super, I've been able to surround myself with people who've allowed me to stretch in that way. Um, but I also think one of the things that happened, I'm going to, it's always a bit hard to work out time because the last year was such a weird mm. um, thing <laughs> to happen in terms of time. But uh, when the student strikes were happening in 2019. Yep. Um, so when they were happening, uh, maybe to give a bit of background, when Future Super previously participated in strikes and actions and things like that, we would rock up, we would uh, allow all our teams to turn up as well and we'd be there and present and we'd bring all our banners and we'd help sign people up and talk about moving their money to us. Um, and in some ways, that's actually not that different to how other corporates approach things, right? So if you think about the Mardi Gras, uh, mm. which happened recently, uh, a lot of corporates will turn up with their banners, will have a float and they'll, uh, they'll put the rainbow flags on their logos for a bit and they've really just attach their brand to an event that they know and hope that it gives them social license. Sure. But what are they actually doing? Like mm. you don't really hear the announcements mm. about how they're potentially making their workplaces better for, um, for, for gay people in their office, right? Like, so it's really just like they're just hit, like, like, hitching on the bandwagon. Purpose and hoping, Yeah. yeah. Um, and I would say that maybe Future Super, while we might have had better intentions, probably wasn't doing much different from it. Mm. So one of the big changes that happened and, which is really um, great from, from our teams, was when the student strikes were happening, um, the, the students organising the strike really challenged all businesses to think, how are they adding to the event? 
Mm. They didn't want people just turning up and selling ice cream and, you know, changing their logos to support it. Like, how are they going to add it? And like, I don't know, those students were thinking a lot deeper than I was when I was <laughs> a student and challenging businesses and uh, really amazing to be in that room. And so our team thought, well, actually, what could we do that isn't just turning up uh, with our logos? And so what they thought they could do is say, well, one of the things that would make a real difference to that student strike uh, is if more people were able to attend. Mm. And one of, um, one of the roles we could say is, well, if businesses allowed their parents to take time off to accompany their, uh, their kids to those student strikes, that could actually be something you could do. Mm. Um, and so uh, we got a small group of other businesses here. I think we started with 10 businesses and we all made a commitment that uh, we're going to allow uh, our staff to all attend the strike that day, take their students with them, things like that. And we're asking you to do the same. People should be able to attend this a student strike without any repercussions. Mm. Um, and so we went a bit further than most and we just had a complete blackout that day. We told our members, you know, we're not answering phone calls or anything like we are coming along. Uh, and then we kind of hoped maybe we'd get a few dozen businesses to join us in making that commitment. Um, but in the end, we had over 3,000 businesses uh, of all different sizes. So we had, you know, the Atlassian, you know, comes on board with like, you know, enormous business. Mm. And then we also had like two people, pool cleaning companies who came in and said like, yes, I want to be a part of it too. It's like an amazing community of over 3,000 businesses who all committed to letting their staff attend that day to help bring their, um, their kids along to the march as well. And the ability of um, uh, workers to do that was credited with uh, being one of the reasons why the turnout doubled mm. uh, in, from the 2019 strike to the, the one previous to it, um, which was pretty amazing. Like, I know that I, you know, really get a feel out of my team mm. having uh, an idea that then, uh, you know, created such a big impact. And then we saw what came out of that was um, we even had BlackRock, which is one of the world's biggest fund managers, say after those strikes that uh, the large turnout in Australia and around the world was one of the reasons why they started to remove some fossil fuel companies from their portfolios mm. after they, they credited the strikes um, for that. So um, I thought that was pretty amazing. But I guess the real change for me was just it changed the way Future Super had done things to that day. Like we were not mm. that much different to how other companies approach it before that. But now we really think deeply about... How can we add to something, mm. not just turn up? Yeah, I love that as a way of thinking. And again, it's back to this community organizing approach that was really at the core of what you started with. And yeah. you talked about that being part of the type of people you recruit. And obviously, you have an amazing team and you can hear from how you talk about them, how proud you are of them. What do you do for your team? How do you think about maintaining this really values-based organization? Um, yeah, we think about it a lot because right, like your people are your um, organization. Um, and obviously as you grow, um, um, that matters as well because people get less connection to sort of the founders of the business and things like that as you get bigger. Uh, we have a really good um, people and culture team uh, and we've probably invested in a bigger people and culture team than what you might normally have in a company of our size because we think it's, um, it's really important. Um, and so, I mean, we think it's really important as well because like we should be set, help set a benchmark for what it is to be mm. an ethical business as well. So it's not just about our product. We also have to uh, mirror that as well. And that team's had some really great initiatives in terms of how you set the mark for what it means to be an ethical business. I think in terms of finding values aligned people is just critical in order to mm. work for us. Like um, we can't just be just a job. Um, you, you do need to um, really sort of feed into the purpose and the mission that we have as a company. And we talk about that a lot. We talk about theory of change a lot within our company as well. So that it's not just something you have to have when you come in. Um, 
But also there's other things we do as well, like in our, um, uh, in our member services team, usually, you know, like you might get people who already have financial qualifications come in and help them answer the phones. Whereas we thought, well, why don't we bring activists in and teach them about superannuation? Yeah, and that yeah, way cool. when our members mm. ring up, they're talking to somebody who's an activist first, who just happens to also now be an expert <laughs> in mm. superannuation. Um, Probably makes it much easier for them to explain as well if yeah. they haven't been too deep in the finance world. Yeah, 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 because they can talk about it like a normal, um, like a regular person might. Mm. Um, and I think one of the other things we've done more recently is we've done a lot better in bringing diversity um, into our business. So I think particularly when you're in the startup world, the startup world is uh, pretty white um, and also very male. <laughs> so uh, we've done a lot of work on how do we recruit to have a more diverse range of people. So we've been, uh, over the last few years in particular, been using a tool called Applied, which removes bias uh, in your selection process. Mm. Um, and, and particularly that unconscious bias, but, you know, for instance, we didn't think we had bias beforehand, but clearly, like, um, the results of this shows that we have a more diverse organisation now than we did <laughs> before we started using mm. these tools. Um, and so through, as a result of that, we've improved our diversity uh, on things like gender, but also on things like race as well, which is really good. Uh, and it's essentially just a blind recruitment tool. So mm. um, really great. It, it takes a little bit of effort to use it more than you would traditionally. Like you'd need to learn how to do this. How, you'd have to learn how to like not get into your old habits of just like mm. having a chat yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. interview. Um, but the results have been, been really good. And I think the other thing we've done is set up um, groups in our workplace that help us think a bit differently about how we can be a good employer for groups who aren't sort of male and white. So mm. uh, we have a group, uh, uh, a women's group within our business. So, um, uh, it's called Super Women, uh, who sit up and, and think about how can we make our business better for women. And we had some good initiatives come out of that. So uh, in the last few weeks, um, introducing menstruation leave was one of the things mm. that they've done. Uh, but we've also thought about how can our workplace be better for carers, given that carers frequently um, end up um, being women. Uh, so um, if you take time off for caring opportunities, you uh, get additional superannuation paid and things like that, which is really good. And then we have another group called Super Spectrum, which is about our... Uh, our people of colour and our organisation thinking through ways that we can help make our business better for people of colour mm -hmm. as well, um, which has been um, really, really great as well because, you know, particularly not just startups but financial services, I, th I think it's not always a, a great um, sort of place. Um, mm. And so that's been really good. One of the things we've done out of that is not just report on things like gender pay gap but started to think through how do we uh, look at things like uh, racial pay gap and mm. things like that um, as well. And uh, maybe, to, maybe to round out... Uh, I'm curious. Your uh, of all of the things, and you know, we've we've gone through a kind of laundry list of the impact that that yourself and Future Super have had today. What's been connected with you the most? What what, what have you you know you've seen that that's just really hit home for personal meaning and satisfaction? What was yeah? Is there a is there a specific example or a story? Um, yeah, it's a good question because there's lots of things I'm really proud of. Mm. Um, but I also, uh, and I realise this is a lot for a lot of progressive people, like um, like the challenge never ends. Like you don't mm. have your proud moments and it's like, well, job done. <laughs> but I feel like um, when I think uh, the next three to five years, I think are really critical, particularly in terms of action on climate and really critical in terms of what Future Super and my company can do in terms of changing our industry to help us achieve what we need to on climate. Um, so I guess what I'm really proud of is the fact that I now have... 60 people in my business who are just absolute stars mm. who know how to know how to win who know how to do those things needed to help make that change so what i'm proud of is that for the ambitious 
uh, things we need to achieve over the next few years. I have a, a really great team who, who knows how to make that change and really elevate beyond what me or Simon could have possibly done as just founders of the business. Um, so I think that's sort of, yeah, awesome. I think that's sort of where, <laughs> where my head goes when I think about that. That's great. Thank you. I think that was a really great chat and it was so good to hear more and more detail about Future Super. Yeah, maybe just one takeaway from each of us around the table. What was your, um, uh, and uh, granted we were kind of, you know, mining your brains, but uh, maybe Kerry, we'll start with you. What was your, what was your biggest takeaway from the conversation? I think the biggest takeaway for me is, and I've said it a couple of times, but is the benefit of community organizing. And I've worked with a few community organizing groups over the last couple of years, and it really is not the sort of old school corporate pushing our messages out at people and mm. asking them to do what we want them to do. It's thinking really differently about how you get people to act and actually make behavior change. Mm. So I think building that into organizational strategy where we want to make real change is a huge opportunity. Love it. Adam? Um, well, I guess I feel like I just spent a lot of time yeah. talking, <laughs> talking at you both, so I'm not um, um, but, but I think um, uh, one of the things uh, I reflect on it is similar, just in terms of it's for collective movements. When, when, I was, when, uh, when we sort of had a chat last week and I was thinking about, you know, what are the things I'd really want to share? I mean, the things that yeah. I always come back to is just it's, it's that community element. So Future Super didn't create all this change. Our members created this change. So it's 40,000 people who are members of our fund who took the collective action needed to make this change. They just need a future super to play its right role in it. I and mean, that's the role of the superannuation fund. But uh, it's quite clear that the, the change comes from the collective movement of people, which is which is our membership. Mm. Yeah, and I just build on that because also something you said just before, which is this is about so much more than just individual change. It's systems yeah. change. And it's yeah. the systems change that we need if we want to make real difference. Mm. For, for me, what hit home was the was the example of the the turning up to marches and the the turning up to to, to protest and the corporate activism and the, the 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 difference between just supporting something verbally and changing a logo and and actually okay how do we how do we meaningfully step into this space and do something because I think the um, organizational world is awash with businesses that are quite happy to put a rainbow um, you know rainbow version of their logo up for for Mardi Gras but. What, what are they actually doing? I think that's a, I think that's a, a good question most organisations could, could ask themselves and would do well to do so. Um, fantastic. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thanks, Thanks for Adam. the chat. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode useful, the best way to support us and spread the message is by telling a friend or a colleague you can also give us a rating or a comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about Leaders for Good and how you can start making positive change, head on over to leadersforgood.org and join our free community. Mm-hmm.